God, I pray that once again you would perform a miracle on a Sunday morning and speak your words to your people. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to enliven our, our minds, to sharpen our minds, and to enliven our hearts. Give us hearts that, that can clearly uh, take in this message, that they're warmed and enlivened by the message of Jesus Christ. We pray this in, in his name, the name of Jesus our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Uh, in the summer of 2007, I was uh, innocently minding my own business, uh, attending a church service. I was listening to a sermon uh, when the preacher, uh, some of you will know the name, Dr. Don Carson, uh, told a story that has really stuck with me for the past six and a half years, and in some ways really has been a, a haunting story that's always in the back of my mind. Uh, so I want to tell you, share with you uh, what he told us uh, in that sermon. Um, he was in, in college at the time, Dr. Carson was in college, and, and he and one of his friends had started a Bible study uh, for people who are not yet followers of Jesus. Uh, they were taking him through uh, one of the Gospels, one of the, the first four books of the New Testament, and learning about who is Jesus, asking questions about the Christian faith, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And every now and then they'd run into some, uh, some questions or some problems, but fortunately there was a, a grad student on campus uh, named uh, Dave, and he was a really sharp guy, and so the, the plan was if they ever ran into trouble, uh, they would kind of bring their non-Christian friends to Dave, and Dave would kind of straighten them out and, and fix them up and then send them on their way. Uh, it's good to have a friend like that. So anyway, the, the problem with, with uh, Dave is that he's a very direct person. He's not one of those sort of make you feel warm and welcome. He's like a get-to-the-point kind of a person. Uh, so, so one day, uh, Dr. Carson brought two of his non-Christian friends to Dave because they had some questions and they wanted to uh, find out a bit more. So he sits him down and, and he goes to the first guy and he says, why are you here? And I said, well, you know, I, I think college is a good time to explore uh, the world religions. I've got a friend who's a Hindu. I'm kind of asking him some questions about his faith. I'm reading some on Islam and these kind of things. And, and I want to find out more about Jesus, too. And this guy looked at him and looked at him, and he finally said, I can't help you. And the guy said, uh, I beg your pardon? It, this was at university in Canada, so they things like, say things like, I beg your pardon. We'd say, what? Anyway, um, so, so he's sitting there, and he says, what, what do you mean you can't help me? And he says, well you're not serious about this. You're just playing around it. When you're serious, then you come back and talk to me. But, but I'm a grad student. I'm busy. I've got things to do. And, and if you're just here to play, I, I just, I don't have time for you. I'm sorry. So he turns to the next guy. Why are you here? And the guy says, well, you know, I grew up in a family that was, that was vaguely religious, but we didn't believe in things like the resurrection of Jesus. We didn't really believe that he's going to come back to judge uh, all people according to what they've done. We, don't, we didn't really believe all the, the specifics of the message about Jesus. We don't really believe all the miracles in the Bible and those kind of things, but we we're vaguely religious people. And he said, but, but it's a good family. And my, my parents loved me. They supported me. They cared for me well. Our family was, was closely knit, and, and we did good things. We, we served in the community. We, so my question is, what do you, as a biblical Christian, what do you have that I don't have? In other words, he's asking, what difference does the gospel actually make? If you actually believe the story of Jesus, what difference does that make for your life? So Dave, this grad student, looked at him. I looked at him. He looked at him. And I'm sure by this point, Dr. Carson's thinking, oh, no, not this again. Why do I bring these people here? But he looked at him, he looked at him, and he finally said, watch me. Watch me. And I said, uh, pardon me? He said, you know, I, I have an extra bed. I'll pay for the food. Come and live with me and watch how I live my life. 
Watch what I do when I wake up. Watch how I interact with people. Watch the things that drive my life. Understand what my goals are, what my principle. You watch me for a semester. You live with me and you watch me day in and day out. And at the end of the semester, you tell me if the gospel makes a difference. And the guy didn't do it literally. He didn't move in with, with Dave, but, but he kept coming back to him. And he kept watching. And he kept asking questions. And by the end of the semester, he was a follower of Jesus. And he gave his life to vocational ministry, serving as a medical missionary. Watch me. It's a, it's a haunting story for me because it's so simple and it's so difficult. Because hearing that story means that I have to look at my life and ask, if someone spent a semester with me, if someone spent four semesters or four months looking at my life, what would they find? Does my life really point to Jesus? Does it really demonstrate that the gospel has made a huge impact? If someone was with me day in and day out watching what I do, looking at the motivations of my heart, looking at how that plays out in my life with my friends, with my family, at home, at school, at work, at play, if they, if they were able to see every moment of my life, would they be able to see the difference that the gospel makes? Would they be able to see that, yes, believing in Jesus really does make a difference? And I want that. These questions are, are exactly what we're trying to get at as a church as we're on this journey together discovering what it means for us to faithfully follow Jesus Christ in a way that is a light into our community, that brings the gospel out into our community. We started uh, together the book of First Peter in the first week of January, and we've seen that, that Peter started off by, by, by explaining the gospel to us, saying that, that God chose you in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, and he has given you new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's given the, the huge truths of the gospel. He's moved from darkness to light, and then he told us, well, this is what that means for how you live. You are to set your hope fully and firmly on Jesus Christ. You are to be holy people. You are to live in fear of God and reverent fear of him. So this is what it means to live as a Christian. And now he's going to get into the specifics of what everyday life really looks like. So we're calling this series uh, Gospel Life in the Real World. And now we're getting to the, the everyday details. We're getting to some of the examples now that Peter's going to uh, give us of what life lived in the gospel really looks like. So today we're going to do 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 through 17. I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, you want to see that these are the words of the Bible, not just stuff I'm making up. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we've got them in the pew racks, and it's found on page 1201. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. So as we look at this, uh, Peter's first going to give the, the basic command and then he's going to give a real-world example of how that command is lived out. So we're going to look at it in two parts. First, the command, and then the real-world example. So let's look at the command together first. First Peter 2, we'll read verses 11 and 12 first. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter again starts off by reminding us that, that we're going to be a bit odd to the people among whom we find ourselves living. We are, he says, foreigners and exiles. It's a term that he already used in chapter 1 to describe God's people. 
It means that, yes, you might be a, a citizen of the United States. You maybe have lived in Michigan or even in Ludington for all your life. But because you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, that means that a radical transformation has happened to you. It means that you are now a, a person who's chosen by God, which means that the most important designator for you is that you are one of God's people. So whatever you might have thought of your citizenship before, once you put your faith in Jesus, it means that you are now a citizen of heaven. You're one of God's children. You're part of his people. So that's the most important designator, which means that, that you're going to be a bit odd among those whom you live among because you have different values. And so you have a different lifestyle. You're going to look like a foreigner. You're a non-citizen wherever you find yourself living, even if you were born there. You are part of God's people now. And because of that, he says, we live differently. And specifically, he says that we've got to put some stuff off. We have to distance ourselves from the kind of ungodly desires that we had uh, that mark humans apart from God. So there's a getting rid of here that's required in the Christian life. And this is actually a strong word here. The languages of warfare, you are to abstain or get distanced from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. In other words, these aren't just mild things. You have been moved from darkness to light, and yet there's always a draw for us to go back to darkness somehow. We have to, it's waging, the darkness is waging war against our soul, so we've got to get rid of the darkness and move closer to the light because that's what the gospel has done for you. There's a positive side of it too. It's, it's distancing ourselves from those desires, but it's also positively put here, live a good life, verse 12. In other words, becoming a Christian affects a change of lifestyle. So rather than following the desires that are opposed to God's will, like we used to before we came to Christ, now we are to live in obedience to God's Spirit. And when we do that, when we live a good life in step with God's Spirit, that produces in us things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In other words, that the Spirit of God works in us to produce fruit, to produce this kind of a lifestyle. So what happens when we live that kind of a life? Well, people are going to notice. See, this is a key point here. What Peter's pushing us to see is that the lifestyle he's challenging us and commanding us to live has an evangelistic purpose. Look at verse 12 again. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. In other words, your lifestyle is an opportunity for others to be able to glorify God by seeing that he is good. People can see that God is good by how you live your life. I mean, that's what, that's what Dr. Carson's friend was getting at. He, he sensed the power of this. He understood that the gospel made a difference for his life. It, it meant that he lived differently, and he wanted this fellow student who was questioning to be able to see the difference that made because it's crucial. Now, in Peter's day, we have to remember that there was a bias against Christians. They were seen as, as treasonous, seditious, uh, superstitious people. Instead of following the normal customs of the city and of their family and of the, the Roman culture and these kind of things, they, they follow this weird thing about Jesus, this guy who apparently died and came back to life. It's just a weird thing from the Roman perspective. And so the Roman writer Suetonius described Christianity as a mischievous superstition. And another guy named Tacitus said it was a, a dangerous superstition. Mischievous, dangerous, a superstitious kind of a thing. In other words, Christians were viewed with a lot of distrust. They're weird people following these weird customs. They won't just be good Roman citizens like they're supposed to. 
Now, in a context like that, the tendency is for others to want to uh, slander Christians, to accuse them of doing wrong. But Peter is challenging them to live gospel lives, to live lives that display the good work of God even so in a way that even those who don't believe in God can see that there is good here. And that way, even when they want to speak badly of Christians, they don't have anything bad to say. They have to begrudgingly acknowledge that there is some good here. This is like uh, watching your favorite sports team play against one of their biggest rivals. You're always looking for the other team to have done something wrong. If, if, if we were the refs in those kind of games, the other, the other team would get all of the fouls, all the infractions, and our team would have none because our team, of course, is perfect, and their team are a bunch of cheaters. I mean, any, any big baseball game, if you watch this, the pitcher's sitting there on the mound, and every time the uh, opposing team pitcher has the ball, the home team is going to call for a balk. If there's a slightest twitch, if the guy steps off the mound, if he takes his hand out of the glove, any of those things, they're going to yell and scream and say, that guy's cheating, he's cheating, he's cheating, get him, right? But every now and then, the opposing team does something that you have to admit is a pretty nice play. And so even as you're watching, even as you don't want them to do something good, you want a reason to yell at them, you have to begrudgingly admit, "Mm, okay, that was a pretty nice pass. That was a nice play. So this happened to me uh, recently. One of my friends is a big Ohio State fan, football, basketball, and everything. And she had posted a a clip from a Michigan State, uh, Ohio State basketball game from, uh, from early this year. And here's what happens. Uh, Aaron Kraft is this little, he's the guy on the, uh, the right there, uh, this little point guard for Ohio State, sneaky guy. Uh, he's inbounding the ball from, from the baseline, from behind the basket. The basket's here. He's inbounding the ball, and it's a tight game, close game, one minute left. They're down by three. Ohio State's down by three. Michigan State's playing tough defense. They're denying the pass. Everyone's you know, making sure their guy's not getting the ball. He takes the ball. He bounces it off one of the Michigan State players, gets inbound, takes the rebound, and a nice easy layup. They're only down by one with still a minute left. I see that, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. I've become something of a Michigan State fan, so I want the Spartans to win. I like their program, these kind of things. But I think, okay, I don't really want to admit it, but that was a heads-up play. That was was good basketball right there. I mean, that's what Peter's getting at. He's saying, listen, the the Romans, they want to accuse you of doing wrong. They want to slander you because they think you're odd, and they think you're not good Roman citizens. They want to speak evil of you. But when they see that you are living a good, godly lifestyle, they're going to have to acknowledge it, begrudgingly or not. But it goes even further than that, that the motivation goes beyond just wanting Peter wanting them to acknowledge that there's good here. Peter's bigger goal here is that people would be able to see the good lives of Christians and be moved to glorify God as a result. In other words, there's an evangelistic, a missional kind of a a motivation here. He wants them to to see the good lives that Christians are living, and as a result, to come to understand that Jesus really is the rescuer sent by God. He really is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, so that they would put their trust in him and glorify God as a result. See, this is where uh, living a life that's transformed by by the gospel really has power and has beauty it can point people to God. That's really what's important about your lifestyle. It can either glorify God and draw people to him, or it can repel people and draw them away from him. When people see that our lives are changed by the gospel, it's a testimony to the power of God at work in our lives, and it makes Jesus more attractive to them. 
And this brings us right back to why the story that Dr. Carson told has been haunting me for the past six and a half years. It means how I live my life matters. My life should be a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Is it? If I look at my life, does the way I live point people to God? Does the way you live your life day in and day out consistently point people to God? And this is Peter's charge. The command he gives us is to live godly lives so that more people would come to glorify God. That's the command he's giving. Live a godly life so that more people would come to glorify God. So how do we do that? Peter's going to give us an example of what that looks like uh, in the real world, in your everyday life. So that's the, the command, the, the principle here. And now we're going to see how that plays out in life. We're going to read what he says here, and then we're going to talk about it together. This is one of those important things that we have to sort of discuss together and, and discover together. So we'll read verses 13 to 17. Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God honor the emperor. Now, I'm sure this is uh, one of those passages that everyone has posted on the refrigerator uh, right up there with Romans uh, 13, where it's saying, you know, submit to every governing authority over you. This is one of those verses that's it's a little bit difficult for us, right? I have to admit, uh, and maybe this is a sadistic thing, but there's a part of me that kind of likes uh, preaching on these kind of passages because they make us squirm a little bit. But I, I want to I talk about this together. Okay. Okay, well, let's look a little closer at what Peter's saying here to see that how the way that Peter gives the command answers some of those objections and helps us understand what, what this is getting at here, okay? So he gives us two points that really solidify the motivation for why we're supposed to submit to, uh, really, it's, it's to all human creatures, whether to the emperor's ruler and the governor uh, as rulers uh, under him. So first of all, the motivation. So in 13, we see it, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. In other words, it is because of God, it's on account of God that we are called to submit to all human creatures, emperor, governors, and and whatnot. The other one's in verse 15, for it is God's will. It's making the same point that the reason that we are called to submit is because of God. In other words, we have to understand that Peter's not commanding this because he thinks that all human leaders are really good people or all human rulers are worthy of being submitted to. Remember, he was living in the Roman world. It was probably either Claudius or Nero, the infamous one, who was emperor of Rome at the time that he was writing this. So he didn't think that he didn't have any misconceptions that governors were always good people or emperors were always good people. See? So we have to be clear on that. It's not because of that. It's because we submit to God. And as we see elsewhere, Romans 13, human governments at their best are part of God's good order. They commend good and they punish wrong. But in any case, the motivation for us as Christians is to obey God. That's the bottom line here. We are called to obey God no matter what. We get a little bit more help if we see the intended outcome of our submission. So look at verse 15. 
For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So there's, there's a missional element to this. This, again, is a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who are not followers of Jesus, as we've just seen, are going to want to slander and speak ill of Christians. But our lifestyles are to testify to the good change brought about in us by the gospel, which makes them unable to come up with bad things to say about us. Really, that's, that's the intended outcome here, is to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. In other words, for here, they can't say that you're treasonous, seditious people if you're submitting to the emperor and to his governors. A few other of our objections are answered as we look at uh, verse 16. It says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So, as it pertains to the emperor, you're not a slave. You're not a slave to the emperor. You're not a slave to the governor. You are a slave of God. So when it comes to the emperor, you are free to make the choice to submit to him. In other words, our submission to humans, like the emperor and governors and all these, it's not slavish submission and it's not blind obedience. We do that as those who obey God no matter what. And of course, that means that there are times when we're not going to be able to obey everything that a human ruler tells us to do. Our full allegiance and obedience are given to God. We are God's slaves. And that means that when they tell us to do something that God forbids, we can't do it because we are God's slaves. We are free in regard to them. We choose to submit to them because we are God's slaves. But when there's a conflict of interest there, we follow Jesus. We obey God because we are his slaves. But our default attitude toward human rulers must be one of respect and honor. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So this is the Christian attitude toward other people. You give the honor that's due to everyone to them. You honor everyone. We, we love each other. We fear God. We honor the emperor, or in our instance, we honor the president. Remember, this is about our lives being lived as a testimony to God's goodness, our lives as a testimony to the gospel. It's about living such good lives that those who would rather slander Christians can see that God is good. This is done with the hope that they will come to Jesus by seeing how we live. So the way we talk about politics and rulers and governments then, that's actually a huge opportunity for the gospel. It matters. I was reminded of this last October when I saw a Facebook post from a guy who works with uh, church plants. This is what he said. Statistically, the unchurched lean heavily Democrat. So if you want to reach the unchurched, maybe constant Facebook and Twitter posts about how stupid Democrats are might be a bad idea. So he got a lot of feedback on that, of course, and so he wrote an article uh, sort of following up on it. He says, yes, of course you have the right to express your opinion. And you know what? Your opinion might be right, but there's something more than your opinion that's at stake here. There are lives that are at stake here, people who are far from God that might be repelled by God for reasons that don't have to do necessarily with the gospel if you are speaking ill of them already. You can turn people away from Jesus by how you talk about others. 
See, I think this is actually a really big opportunity for us as a church to, to change this conversation, for us to, to be a different-looking kind of a people, for people to be able to see the difference that the gospel makes in our lives. I mean, if you think about the political conversation in our country right now, it's, it's an ugly kind of thing. It's very polarized and very polarizing. There's little middle ground. There's lots of name-calling. There's lots of accusations back and forth. And there's very little respect across party lines. But the gospel shows us a better way. So, for example, the Bible teaches us that every human is made in the image of God. So how do we as Christians live in light of that? Well, it means that we give everyone proper respect. We honor them because they are, like us, made in God's image. They have value. Human life has intrinsic value because we are made in the image of the Creator. Or the Bible says that every human being is a sinner who has rebelled against God. And so knowing that, knowing that the Bible says that, how do we live as Christians? Well, we don't expect everyone to live according to God's rule. We should not be surprised when we see that people are living contrary to God's will. We see this is the problem that, that the Bible points out. This is the, the, the effects of sin in the world. And the Bible says that, that God extended his incredible grace to us in his son, Jesus Christ, when, when we deserve nothing but, but sin, or nothing but death and, and hell. He sent his son, Jesus, to, to live and to suffer and to die to free us, to rescue us from the effects of sin and darkness and death. He extended grace to us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we know that, if that's our story, then how do we live today? We are able to extend grace to others, and we know that this is what they need. They need the healing that is offered in Jesus Christ. So when you look at those who are in office in Washington, you are able to treat them with dignity and respect and grace because they're just fellow humans just like you. Yes, they're in, in a position of authority, but, but they're broken, fallen humans just like you and me, and you, they need exactly what we need. So we're able to treat them with dignity and respect and grace because we know that they're made in God's image. And they wouldn't be in that position if God did not allow them to be in that position. And they are sinful humans who need God's grace. And Jesus has died for them. See, that changes the whole conversation. It'll, it frees us then from the, the name-calling and the anger and, and all of this stuff to, to get beyond that and start loving them as fellow humans and start praying for them consistently like the Bible teaches us to. I remember the first time I was in a church service at an Anglican church uh, when I was in college. There were lots of different things about that service. They have a, a more of a historical liturgy and these kind of things. And uh, so it was a very different service for me. But one thing I, that I still remember that still stuck out to me was when the minister uh, stopped to pray in the middle of the service. And he had uh, kind of an extended prayer for the congregation. And as part of his, his prayer for different congregational concerns, he prayed for President George. This was back when George W. Bush was still president of the United States. And I found out later that they do that every Sunday. They pray for their leaders because, well, that's what the Bible tells us to do. Paul, in a letter to uh, Timothy, says this. He says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So they're taking seriously this call to pray for leaders, to pray for the president, to pray for governors, to pray for senators and congressmen. How we talk about people can either draw people closer to God or it can repel them away from God. 
It can either serve as a testimony to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it can be an offense that's not the offense of the gospel to people. How we talk about people matters. So as you see those who are in office, do you see them as fellow humans who are made in God's image? And as a result of that, does your speech reflect that you see them as people who have value and who have dignity? See, it's got to change the conversation because that's what it means to obey to God's uh, command to pray for them and his command here to submit to them. It means treating them as humans and, and offering them the respect and the dignity and the honor due to them as such. I mean, this is gospel life in the real world, right? This isn't easy stuff. We're talking about government and rulers and stuff today, and in, next week we're going to talk about slaves, then we're going to talk about husbands and wives, then we're talking about suffering, even when you're doing the right thing, suffering for good. He's going to talk about lots of stuff, and it's not easy stuff. But this is gospel life in the real world. Peter's point is that how we live our lives matters. It has an eternal significance for other people. It's a, it can either be a reflection of the gospel or can pull people away from Jesus. How we live can either move people closer to God and make him attractive or repel them from God. So Peter charged us in light of that. He says, live a godly life because he wants more people to glorify our great God who deserves all the honor and all the praise and all the glory of all creatures on earth. We are called as Christians to live in such a way that others can see that the gospel has made a difference that other people can see that God is good and he's doing a good work in people's lives. We do this. We live these lives with the hope that God will work in their lives too, even through our testimony, so that they will put their faith in Jesus and they will glorify him with us. One last tiny piece to this. What if your life doesn't show others the gospel? What if you're sitting here thinking, man, I could never tell someone, watch me and see the difference that the gospel makes? You've got to get more of the gospel. I mean, that, that's the solution, right? This isn't just, you know, try harder, be better, do good. This isn't about you trying to manufacture something on your own. This is about God working in our hearts and lives. See, the lifestyle that the gospel calls us to, that this transformation is the fruit of God's spirit at work in our lives. I mean, we could kind of sort of tape little pieces of fruit to our lives and say, hey, look, I've got fruit. I can kind of manufacture these things on my own. But it's not true fruit, right? Fruit comes from a good tree. So you ask that God would work in your heart. You need more of the gospel if your life isn't reflecting the gospel. That's what you need. You need more of God. You don't need to try to try harder on your own apart from him. No, you need to lean on God more and more every day because that's where the power to change comes from. Peter's command here is firmly rooted in the gospel. Two verses earlier, we've got to remember where he just took us. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it's because of that gospel that he can then say, live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. God has called you from darkness to light, and that is how you are able to now live and shine your light so that others can see and glorify him with you. It is the gospel that transforms us so that others can see and glorify God with us. May God help us.
always. Please pray with me. Our holy God, these are challenging type of passages, uh, to me at least, and I assume to others as well, to realize that, that our lives matter, that how we, lives, how we live matters. And my tendency when I hear something like this is to try to just straighten up on my own and, and buckle down and, and do what I can to be a good person. But every time I try that, I fail. And I've seen others do the same. We don't have the power for this in our own. And even if, if we could somehow do that, where would the praise go? Where would the glory go? It would come to us because we are such good people. But that's so contrary to the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that we are hopeless, needy sinners, and you sent your son, Jesus, to make us whole, and you are transforming us from wretched sinners into holy saints by the power of your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that where our lives do not reflect your gospel, that you would work deeper into our hearts, work this message of of Jesus deeper and deeper into us so that we would bear beautiful fruit, fruit that can point others to you. I pray that you'd make us that kind of a community, that kind of a church, a church that is being made increasingly into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of your spirit. Please do your miraculous work of sanctification in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.